Hello everyone, Nicholas here. I'm just using the fact that I edit the episodes to um, insert my own little editorializing at the beginning of this episode. I just wanted to let everybody know that um, Lauren and I are going to be taking a break at the end of December. Uh, we will be back in probably like mid-January with more awesome Dashi episodes. But before we do that, I wanted to thank you all for listening and for making this second full year of Fudidashi as amazing as it has been. And with that, here's the episode. And welcome back to the Foodie Dashi podcast and to this, our year end special. And this is going to be part one of a, of a two part series. Part two, we're going to be talking about the game Immortality and sort of doing a deep dive into what we thought was sort of the one game this year that really did something fundamentally different with narrative mechanics and narrative systems. And so um, that's going to come out two weeks from now. But for now, as our sort of year end roundup, because I personally hate year-end roundups, so I was insist on doing it in a different way. Um, we're mostly going to rely on Lauren to discuss, I guess, trends from the past year in game dev, in the games industry, like where we think things are headed, and also talk a little bit about sort of why so many AAA games especially are sequels or remakes or just like kind of doing the same thing that they've always done not that that's a bad thing but we actually want to discuss a little bit about why that is uh yeah i wanted to talk about this obviously i think for me i started the title with designing sequels but nicholas kind of rightfully pointed out that there's a reason why right industry uh trends so to speak are designing sequels and i think that there is something to kind of talk about the industry's trends kind of largely as broader systems or broader like feature titles that you've heard of which then lean into kind of what's the new next hotness and being a game (laughs) developer right like i i have some like insider information on that that's not really insider information it's more i work in games and yeah nothing that'll violate an nda it's nothing that'll violate an nda right so that's what i'm talking about so this isn't insider trading this isn't like quickly go find (laughs) stocks to go purchase right this is just very simple things that everyone i lauren is going to reveal all of the inside information on the microsoft (laughs) activision merger so that way you can go out and like these are being a part of microsoft or activision at that time by Uh, the way none of this can be construed (laughs) as financial advice by the way yeah none of this is financial (laughs) advice or uh game development advice if you are making to look at your own company or anything like that. Um, But I did want to talk about industry trends. And I think that for me, the shift of the industry is very easy. I think the biggest thing we can see right now as a, as a industry trend, and we've seen it for a really long time is the emphasis. And I'm, so I'm just going to dive right in, right, Nicholas, Yeah, go ahead. Um, is the emphasis on multiplayer. Yeah. And not just multiplayer titles that are like MMOs or shooters, but cooperative multiplayer. Yeah. 
And I really want to emphasize the cooperative part aspect of multiplayer titles, because when we looked at Baldur's Gate 3 coming out yeah. from notorious designers at Larian Studios yeah. or Larian, depending on how you want to pronounce <laughs> it, um, yeah. I actually never know how to pronounce it, so... Uh, but I anyway, either, so with Divinity <laughs> Original Sin, Divinity yeah. Original Sin 2, right, this four-person yeah. co-op experience, that's kind of like the ideal party makeup, right? It's four people going out on an adventure, and the game is your DM. Like, that's the Dungeons and Dragons, right? We've talked yeah. a lot about D&D. We don't need to redo it here. But I think the industry trend to multiplayer is not going away. I don't think this no. is an industry fad. I think that if we look at kind of the trends of the industry and looking at multiplayer, especially because of the pandemic, and people are moving to more remote work sections or moving back with family. So they're moving away from the physical locations where game studios or game events are. And they're moving back to friends or family somewhere else where those friends and families may not play games. Yeah, Multiplayer titles are a great way to onboard your family members in a safe environment to get them addicted to Baldur's Gate 3 just like you are. Yeah. Um, and more really Divinity Original Sin 2. Um, <laughs> because Baldur's Gate, when Baldur's Gate launched, it had so many bugs. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. But that being said, I did retry to play it with my friends at every single patch. Patch one. So day zero, day one, their second patch, their third yeah. patch, their fourth, their fifth. I think we had five different games with our friend group going for Baldur's Gate 3 until we finally realized we had to wait until early access alpha was gone. Like yeah. we have this title that has been sitting on our machines for I guess a year now. Yeah. Um, right. Uh, another title, sorry, Nicholas, please interject here. Oh, well, yeah. The only point I was going to make is that, it, and it's not just live service games like Valorant or Apex Legends or Overwatch or, you know, I guess those are all shooters. But also, like, if you look at, you know, and this is pretty much true year in, year out. If you look at, you know, the top selling games from each year, you know, a lot of them are sports games. And so, like, you know, Madden 23, FIFA 23, which came out this year, which are not reinventing the wheel by any stretch of the imagination they literally put out a new one every year in fact even call of duty puts out a new call of duty every single year these games are very much of the like they're, they're not just multiplayer but they're also they have a kind of finite quality to them and i would even include games like uh like splatoon 3 in this category where it's the kind of game where you can sit down play for a little bit and then go do something else like you don't have to, unlike sort of more story-focused games where you really kind of have to like devote consistent and chunks of time just to playing them, you know, these are multiplayer games that all, for the most part, like, you know, probably any individual like gameplay cycle is at most going to be like 15 minutes. And you can do yeah. as many of those as you want, but you, it's always like chunked in particular ways. You know, and I actually want to emphasize that with what I was going to kind of say with kind of my second industry trend in the multiplayer vein, right? Is that yeah. the reason why I said multiplayer is trending, like it's not going away, this isn't a fad. Like yeah. it isn't suddenly we'll have a lot of single player titles, but it's that multiplayer as a motivation for playing and being able to play with friends is not something that's going away. But I think yeah. second is a year ago, I was going to talk about another title known as Pokemon Unite is having its one year anniversary this kind of month. And that's yeah. interesting because they just, uh, the Pokemon company just released a second Pokemon game, which is Pokemon Scarlet and Violet. Yep. So on top of them and releasing, Arceus, Arceus also and they, came out they did year. Arceus, but in January, this is yeah. the same. What I'm talking about is in November. They're having a one year anniversary for their oh, okay. competitive, yeah. but cooperative. So competitive, like co-op-appetitive uh, <laughs> I don't know, yeah. Now, the reason why I do want to say co-op-appetitive is that I know that like Pokemon <laughs> Unite is like a Pokemon MOBA. 
which yeah. is a I don't remember what MO, MO, MOBA stands for. Like, uh, it, I don't remember what it stands for either. But it, you know, games like League of Legends, Dota. Yeah, games like League games. of Legends, Dota. But that's what I'm saying is I get that Pokemon yeah. Unite is a MOBA, but it still requires right teamwork to, you know. I don't know, defeat yeah. your opponent. It's cooperative, right? It's team-based yeah. competition. Yeah. And the same way, right, that the shooters are. is team-based competition. Yeah. But this type of emphasis on getting a group of five people now together to play, right? Like that's, do you have a group of five people to play with, right? Yeah. And I think that's the emphasis on those networks and the emphasis on that reminded me to kind of talk about the live service component because when I talk about multiplayer, I'm not talking about live service. Yeah. And I think that now that would be my... I know that my second point was kind of like, it's really more like 1A. My first point is multiplayer is here to stay. That is an industry trend that is no longer a trend as an industry fact. I think the second thing is also like the not a trend, another industry fact, like this is the way forward, is that live service is not the future, it is the present. Every game is going to have some sort of persistent online patching and online construction and online release cycle. And this is for a lot of reasons that we've talked about on the podcast here, but mainly, right, it's the ones that you already see. Game development and games take a lot longer to produce. Game developer churn, like churn through different companies, right? So onboarding, hiring, like it takes three months to onboard someone. And if they're gone in a year and a half, (laughs) yeah, your game, that's not even a fraction of your development cycle now. No. Third is that these large, much larger games that are coming out from AAA are game experiences that take up to like five to 10 years to create a full single player, say, experience. And game yeah. development studios don't have that money anymore. And maybe maybe two or three, right? But it's that yeah. at the end of the day, money will run out, right? So I think for me, live service is just a fact. Like, I'm not sure if that's a trend that was worth saying, but you did bring it up with live service titles like Valorant or Overwatch that I thought it was worth noting that I think maybe the industry trend to look out for with live service is I think we'll just stop thinking of it as a bad thing. I think people will stop saying live service is bad and we'll start looking at it as live service is kind of good. Like it's normal. Well, I think it depends on, I think a lot of the dissatisfaction with live service games stems from the fact that historically they tended to be quote unquote free to play, but with a lot of like really, like either they had like gambling incentives or they had they had in-game sort of like pay-to-play mechanics that were a bit unseemly at times. In fact, even when League of Legends first started off, it, like it had a kind of pay-to-win aspect to it that oh, a lot of I, people found really, really... I, I don't disagree with that. <laughs> but what I would say is like the trend slash trend to look out for is that I think we're going to be moving away from acronyms like, or I hope we're going to be moving away from acronyms, right? Is that this year I at least on the developer side, we really aren't using acronyms like, we are using acronyms like games as a service and we are using acronyms as live service, but we're almost doing it tongue in cheek for the investors that are like still old and using those terms. Because (laughs) games as a service and software as a service. So just for everyone to be clear, games as a service stole this from software as a service that came out in the early 2000s when people like Microsoft realized that they could, instead of releasing discs for Office 365, Microsoft learned that they could do subscription. And suddenly their software was a service they provided to their customers and no longer a disc or a product that they sold at retail. Now, this isn't to say that they don't, you can't just buy Microsoft Office, right? 2008 or, wow, I'm old. 
2017 was the latest one. 2000. And, I, but I regardless, know. I don't know because I'm on Microsoft 365, their annual yeah. service program. Like we don't know yeah. anymore, right? Yeah. And I think that's because technology is always changing. Um, well, the thing is, like, it, it, because of that history of it being exploit, not just history. I mean, we we saw when like Diablo Immortal came out that it was. It pushed the exploitation button like as hard as it possibly could. Um, and because the thing is, there's always going to be examples that could go either way. Like three, Office 365 is like not really too bad when it comes to its Well, because it's a software. Base. Like it's a yeah. thing that people need. The issue is that games but as like a service. like Adobe is ridiculously like exploitative in terms of oh, like yeah. their software terms. So I think part of that bad, that bad taste that people get with live service comes from the fact that it, it, you never really know which way it's going to go. Is it going to be something reasonable? Is it going to be like an MMO that you pay like, you know, a 10 to $15 subscription per month for? In which case that, you know, to me, that seems a f- perfectly reasonable deal because the thing is MMOs are constantly updating themselves, constantly adding new content. So the thing is like, even though you're constantly paying for it, you're always getting more as things progress. Whereas like with Adobe with Adobe software, you're kind of paying for the same thing until they update it. But even when they update it, the updates are not so substantial that like even really warrant these like, you know, entire upgrades from old software. So I, I think, I don't know if the games industry can ever quite overcome that kind of bad blood, if you will. <laughs> that, well, and that's, that that's our has. fault as the games industry yeah. for stealing terms from another exploitative interest industry. And yeah. that's what the games industry does is we steal things. Um, <laughs> my, my third point, cause what I really wanted to talk about was sequels. And yeah. so I think my third point is actually really, really actually is going to come to me from Nicholas. Just saying that right there is that my third point is the industry trend that I think really happened this year is that everything will be different, which means that everything will stay the same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because I want to, I really wanted to talk about Pokemon Arceus because yeah. when I look at designing and obviously when you talk about designing sequels, we'll get into Elden Ring. So Pokemon yeah. Arceus, Elden Ring, um, and then just generally franchises like Call of Duty or franchises like, um, like Battlefield, things have been going for a really long time. Right. Yeah. And, when you talk, look at Pokemon Arceus, it was an open world Pokemon game. And, you know, Pokemon really hasn't been open world in the sense of a Horizon Zero Dawn or a completely yeah. open and persistent living world. Yep. Now, it may have been, in my definition, open world in that it was a large expanding universe. You had to go in and out of buildings like it was a city map. But there were encounters that were specifically designed to happen right in tall grass. They were going to be random because they would randomly generate from a pool of Pokemon that were in that area, right? Now, while that's still open world and systemic, and that was a product of trying to create an open world Pokemon, we now have things like Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild, Horizon Zero Dawn, um, Elden Ring, right? We have these open world titles that really created a simulated experience of being in an open world. Yeah. But at the end of the day, Pokemon Arceus, while it really hit the nail on the head for what it was like to create an open world kind of Pokemon. And they emphasized collecting and throwing Pokeballs. There's like two other titles that did that really well that you can see they stole from, right? This goes back to the games industry steals things. Yeah. It's obviously Pokemon Go, 
their other yeah. franchise that is about running around a world and throwing Pokeballs to catch things. Yeah, and that's it's, it. it's, it's kind of a self-contained Pokemon Go that doesn't require the real world. <laughs> that doesn't require the real world, right? And that's yeah. what I wanted from Pokemon Go. So I was like, yes, I'm in. <laughs> I love this. This is what I want. I just want to Pokemon Go, but I don't have to go outside. <laughs> but I don't have to go outside. Done. Well, because I loved Pokemon Go when I lived in a college town and when I lived in like a city. But as yeah. soon as I moved back in with my parents uh, just to finish out my collegiate program, yeah. it was yeah, the closest Pokemon stop was a CVS that was like a mile and a half from my house walking. And I mean, maybe I should have just done it. I should have just gone to that Pokestop every day. I'd be super fit right now. Like, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. But if that's just what it was. Like, I had to drive. And like, that's why they made in the U.S. Like, all those driving laws was, hey, you're moving too fast. Are you driving? Because in the U.S., you'd have to drive to Pokestops. Yeah. So great. I'm out of my house. But now I'm like burning carbon dioxide and like burning gas and like. Yeah. All these other things. So yeah. I think that, um, anyway, but so we look at Pokemon Go, but Arceus also really felt like with the climbing, with the mounts, like this very Legend of Zelda meets, I mean, meets Horizon and that instead of shooting, you're like throwing the Pokeball, but like definitely yeah. just feels like a contained, this is a really good open world experience. Yeah. And so what's interesting though, right, is Arceus got a ton of, or also known as Pokemon Legends, Arceus, just for everyone understands what we're talking about. Yeah. Um, what I loved about that title was that it did, now this is right, interesting, completely change the fundamentals of what makes a Pokemon game a Pokemon game. Yeah. And when you think of Pokemon Red and Blue, right, it's all about you're going to be the best trainer. You're going to defeat these gem leaders. You're going to be the very best like no one ever was. Like no one ever was <laughs> for the next like 30 years of your life. <laughs> Over and over yeah. again, every time you get Endlessly. to a new region. Endlessly. Um, I'm going to be the very best that no one ever was. And then well, your next snaps. And then your next snaps, yeah. Um, and then that, that was it. You were the very best. No, but I want to I say this because I think what's so fundamentally impressive to me is that this genre, this title, right, was like, this is a Pokemon game like there never, ever was before, right? Yeah. And everything stays the same. It's Pokemon Go meets whatever. That's as, as we developers, like we see that. And honestly, as you gamers, like you're intelligent. Okay, you see that too. The thing is that you're playing the game and like, God, bye, darn, it hooked you. It hooked me because I play Pokemon to collect Pokemon, to run around a world, to explore, to honestly, to catch stronger and bigger Pokemon. But what this changed, all right, fundamentally is that it didn't matter what your team was because yeah. you could catch really big Pokemon and I could have a level 10 and a level 50 in a party and it would be fine. Yeah. That is a fundamental like change, right? What is Pokemon? That's a core value you could say, or a core pillar of crafting your team and being a trainer. But in this, even though they call you a trainer, like you're not, you're like a Pokemon collector or a Pokemon researcher. Yeah. You I see? mean, a lot of it has to do with the fact that the sort of the the oldest Pokemon games were explicitly derived from like old school RPGs. And it was just another like take on the RPG. And so it's got a lot of RPG elements. You know, it's got the starting town where you get your starting gear. In this case, your gear are little like pet monsters. And then you slowly progress over time. It's got level up mechanics. It's got all of the classic things that you expect right. from an RPG. But the Whereas, twist, are, yeah, go ahead. No, but what the twist with Pokemon was that you have your starter, but you're supposed to cultivate a relationship with that. Yeah. So the gear yourself that you have, right, gets more mods or moves that yeah. you're not supposed to switch out your starter. You're yeah. supposed to carry your starter with you throughout the levels. And that's why, right, it, it was all the way, I think, 
was it always level 30? I feel like it didn't evolve until level 40 or 50 in some titles. But like where your starter 30, had three, I, I, I can't, had three I can't different every single one. Yeah, I can't comment on every single one either. And I maybe it was always 30. But the point is that every title, every gym, you're supposed to evolve these Pokemon throughout a life cycle. And it might not be your life cycle, but it's theirs. And there's yeah. something about that organist like parallel that created that fundamental difference. And that's kind of what I when you look at designing sequels, it's about designing an experience that is exactly like the experience you delivered, but with like enough of a twist, yeah. right? And like the same logic could be said for, well, designing an RPG and now it's Pokemon, right? Is that it was just a twist. Instead of changing out your swords for new swords and you don't care about them, what if you cared about your sword and your swords were people? That's Boyfriend Dungeon, yeah, right? Which was also a fantastic title and I don't remember what year it was released, but... That I think it was this year. Actually, it might have been the end of last year. Let me look. I think it was break. the end of last year. But boyfriend dungeon is another fantastic title. Where what if your weapons were people and you cared about them? But more than that, what if your yeah, it was last year. What if it was last year, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's that's why I was like, it can't be this year's game of the year. That's why it's not on the list. <laughs> um, but boyfriend dungeon, incredible title. But it's those it's those types of realities, right? That yeah. we live in as a game developer and we're looking at all of these titles to draw from and we're playing snippets or we're watching other players play those titles that we look at Arceus and Arceus is like, wow, this is not a Pokemon game. Like a lot of my friends were saying that. And yeah. when I played it, I was like, well, it isn't the big mass market Pokemon game, but yeah. it is a very specific niche or niche, right? Yeah. Of the Pokemon franchise and now that gets into like really cool territory for me right which is th this is my top three like industry trends right multiplayer yeah, yeah. um live service i mean live service is here to stay but it's more like i don't think we'll call live service live service anymore i think it'll you know that's that's just something that's kind of inevitable but third is franchises will become greater than how we have thought of franchises in the past. So it won't just be like everything will stay the same, but that means every, everything will be different, which means everything will stay the same. <laughs> like Pokemon will be a franchise we consider as Pokemon, yeah. but it will follow more of what we've seen kind of with Persona, right? Persona well, 5 yeah. is, is a Persona game, but is Persona dancing a Persona game? Hmm? Well, mm -hmm. the thing is, like, even in the AAA space, when there is something that comes along that is genuinely novel, like, you know, when Horizon Zero Dawn came out, it was doing a lot of things that were very, very different. But now the impetus is on, like, turning that into a franchise. Like, you know, one of the big games of this year was more, more Horizon, <laughs> Horizon Forbidden West. And I'm not trying to knock on the game, but it, like, even if you look at so the one indie game that probably surprised a lot of people this year, Vampire Survivors, like, well, one isn't really like any other indie game that came out this year, or at least not like a lot of them. But it, it's it really just sort of is a mashup of tried and true roguelike elements just done in a really sort of fun, goofy and entertaining way. Um, and when you look at and when you look at the top selling games, when you look at like say sports games in particular, which literally is just like it's the same game it was last year, but with different team rosters, that's really sort of the only thing that's different. Like Madden twenty three is not that different from Madden twenty two. FIFA twenty three is not that different from FIFA twenty two. Um, that's probably like you know the the edge case of like you know the most ridiculous. It's just the same game, but 
more. <laughs> but I think that when you look at that, like every, and I know that we've talked about this in the past, and I actually need to correct my past self because I'm kind of recognizing now, having been in the game industry for over seven years, yeah. that there is something, and I don't like the way that we call it, but there is something about the nostalgic factor. Yeah. And I think it's more about tapping into the same expectations and motivations that originally brought people to the title and yeah. then re-releasing that as version two or another one. Yeah. And I have to mention this one with the wrapper of Horizon Zero Dawn in that having worked at Crystal Dynamics, who is most famous for Tomb Raider, when we <laughs> looked at Horizon Zero Dawn, like those are the Tomb Raider mechanics in an open <laughs> yeah. world and a novel setting with yeah, a unique yeah, yeah. narrative, yeah. right? And then dialogue choice. And I think what's really great is I played that game while interviewing for Crystal Dynamics. And I was like, yeah, I felt a lot like Tomb Raider. And they were like, you're hired, done. Um, <laughs> but it, it, it really, yeah. yeah and that, yeah. that's how it is in the games industries. You can kind yeah, of yeah. see that it's like, what if we had a really amazing like bow, right? Experience because Laura could use a gun. Like, yeah. They do exist. I played Lara with a gun. Would you? Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. The, the, the class, the classic Lara is the is the is the, the, is the two Berettas. The, exactly, yeah, right? It's the, the Berettas. So like yeah. now she uses a bow, and suddenly it's like, oh my gosh! Like let's have another female hero with a bow in a bigger setting, etc. What does that look like? And yeah. I loved Horizon Forbidden. Not Forbidden was Horizon Zero Dawn. Sorry, that's yeah. the, the new one. But when you look at it, it's what are the same motivations that players had with HZD that they want with Horizon Forbidden West, HFW. Yeah, yeah. Like, what are those motivations? And I think that there is something to be said for when we look at franchises, not just expanding, say, breadth of type of experience. Like yeah. a Persona game, to me, what's interesting is Persona Strikers is very much a Persona game in that even though the mechanics are vastly different, the systems and the fundamental experience of playing Persona, defeating a boss, rep like increasing your relationship with your teammates and also like uncovering mystery like a greater mystery that's all there right and all the <laughs> yeah, mechanics yeah. are different yeah. but the systems and the core philosophy and the core narrative and the fiction of the universe exists even though persona strikers is not or persona 5 strikers i should say versus persona 5 royale or persona 5 like the original are totally yeah. vastly different experiences and yeah. you've seen this with persona five starlight which is their dancing game where there are more after you dance only by dancing their songs do you unlock more conversations with your teammates to progress the f future system to right like it has all of those underlying fundamental relationships and yeah. math in that so not just breadth right so when i talk about a franchise breadth that's what i'm talking about yeah but i think also right we'll have franchise niche and franchise depth and that's yeah. pokemon as a franchise now making rcs which is a subset of their systems and core systems and philosophy expanded onto a different title. Um, yeah. But we'd also have less things like Assassin's Creed 1, Assassin's Creed 2, Assassin's Creed Infinity. And my hope, right, or a trend that I'm starting to see is we'd have like Assassin's Creed, like French, like they already had Unity, I guess, but we'll have like Assassin's Creed, the next one, and it will be a larger, the next yeah. one, and it will be a larger world, but potentially we would also see kind of a deep dive into that mechanic yeah. to kind of go back to what were the original motivations and expectations of those players. And yeah. a lot of that could be reactive. Like, what have we lost, right? In a franchise like Assassin's Creed, I think a lot of the questions are, what have we lost from the original? 
Breath of the Wild was birthed from the creators going, what have we lost? What in getting back to Legend of Zelda? And they realized, well, we were making linear games and our first game wasn't linear. Like yeah. done, right? You're complete. You're completely done, right? And so I think with Pokemon, they were like, well, what's something we've lost? Well, actually, we're not a battle simulator. It was actually about collecting Pokemon. We wanted to collect bugs. Yeah. And how fun it was to collect these bugs. And we just put an RPG on top of it. What if we just removed the RPG? Oh, now it's about collecting bugs again. Now the universe and the players are expected and motivated and ready for this. Right? So I think it's, it's all about that type of aligning when we look at designing sequels or... Well, I say designing sequels, but when you look at just being critical or like looking at the landscape of the type of sequels that are coming out, like uh, something you can talk about. I know Nicholas is Elden Ring. So I can shut up for a little bit is you can talk about Elden Ring and that wonderful, but simply the same. (laughs) Well, okay. But no, but no, but it's not the same. I mean, the, the open world aspect of it, it, I mean, it is, you know, another from software game. It also has different lore from the dark souls slash bloodborne games. Um, so it, it is, it is a souls like, if you will, <laughs> which is sort of strange considering it's the same company. Um, the lore is very different, but also because of the open world aspect, it doesn't feel claustrophobic in the way that a dark souls game does. And also like, even though it's hard, I don't know. I, it doesn't feel as punishing because a lot of what happens in say like, you know, dark souls one and two and also in bloodborne is like, sometimes you feel like you failed just because the game decided that you failed. Like the game set something before you that like you had no possible way of anticipating. It wasn't telegraphed. It's just, Oh, here's a pitfall here. You're dead. Like what the fuck? <laughs> like, why, why did you do that to me? And the game's like, you guys can't see it, but I'm flipping Lauren off. Whereas Elden Elden Ring is hard, but I felt like it didn't quite have the fuck you aspect to it quite as much. And I think that is a direct result of the open world aspect because um, like Dark Souls especially has this sort of like tunnel vision-y thing where, as I was saying, you can't necessarily anticipate what's coming up ahead. But also... Elden Ring still does have a lot of the things that, you know, you have in from software games where like most of the game's lore is in text descriptions to items, which I find to be personally be kind of annoying, but some people like that or the, the same aspects where like, you know, certain things are, you know, you have to like click on this particular pixel on this particular door 87 times, and then you'll go through and then you'll instantly be killed by a monster that's upside down, like random Easter eggs that kind of don't make any sense but are part of the whole um, from software experience of like beating your head against a game and Elden Ring reproduces that without some of, in my opinion, the more frustrating aspects of it at the same time. It's weird to me because what I value in video games personally are truly novel experiences and that can be kind of hard to find. And the thing, but the thing is, like this year had plenty of them. Um, Stray is a really novel game. Cult of the Lamb is a really novel game. Um, one of my favorite um, game dev collective, Sock Pop Collective, they put out a really great game called Stacklands, which is a really interesting take on sort of like you know the card and deck building system. Like all of these games provide really unique experiences. And also the game that we're going to be talking about in part two, Immortality, very novel gameplay experience. So all of these things exist. And yet 
I have yet to see one that really sort of like bursts out into sort of like mass popularity. Like they, they sell well, they do well, but they never quite like, I, I can't imagine that your average call of duty player has ever heard of any of these games or is ever likely to play them. Yeah. And as someone who wants to like, uh, de-emphasize the aspect maybe of like a call of duty player, um, yeah. Just because, like, Call Sorry of Duty player that. doesn't really say anything. Yeah, it's pretty um, much like, that is everyone. It's like, you know, your average God of War player, which is... It's like, everybody. literally everyone. <laughs> but, um, and I think that's, maybe that's a really great way to kind of, like, bucket this as, like, maybe that fourth point. Yeah. And I'm not, you know, but, like, the fourth really industry trend is something that I've seen, is that when we look at AAA titles, we're not going to see the level of innovation that people used to expect from triple a and the reason is because we want to craft a very large expansive return of our billion dollars of investment (laughs) in a franchise that a lot of people will play and a lot of people enjoy which in order to do that we'll have to innovate in ways that are relatively safe to the status quo or in ways that are expected and match the original player motivations especially in the franchise right like i'm very excited to play the new assassin's creed i'm a big assassin's creed fangirl but That means that we're actually going to see a lot more innovative and unique takes, not just like an immortality, but I've played Cult of the Lamb and it is the cutest, most addictive game I have ever played this year, I think. Um, And I play and I play Pokemon Arceus like Cult (laughs) of the Lamb is hyper, hyper fantastic. I am on the last chapter of Stray and also another fantastic title. I love playing a cat. I mean, what game would say you're going to play a hyper realistic world in a post apocalyptic setting and you're a cat like you can't even speak. You can only meow. And like when you in a spoiler way, lose your ability to communicate with the world, that really feels like you're way of looking at the world and perception of that world has just completely changed yeah. in that moment. And while brief, it is uh, it is harrowing and makes you not take for granted, right, the mechanics of the game that you've been playing with all along. Yeah. And if that's like our rave review of those like really innovative titles that I do think we'll see more in the indie space, like I really, I can't wait for you to listen to what we're going to have to say about immortality next, because it is, yeah, that, that's why we talk about indie titles here. That's that's why we do it. So I think that's it. we're going to leave it there for part one. Um, you can catch part two in a couple of weeks. But in the meanwhile, you can follow Lauren on Twitter for as long as Twitter continues to exist. Uh, she is at the Lauren Ash. I am at Academicality. We are also on Instagram where I post my really fantastic episode artwork, which you should come and laugh at because it's goofy and strange. Um, but until next time, I hope you all have a well, this is coming out. This is still coming out at the end of November. No, it's a fantastic have, holiday breaks. Yeah, holiday season, and we will be back in a couple of weeks for our end of the year deep dive into immortality. Stay tuned. <laughs>